First of all, happy anniversary to Stephen B. Garcia, 23 years today. If you see Steve, he's got a tie on somewhere. He dressed for the occasion. Smart man. We're continuing our series in the Songs of Life through the book of Psalms, and now we have moved into the third book of Psalms. Remember, they're broken up into five different books, and each book is dealing with specific things. The first book was very personal with David. The second book, David was dealing kind of as a nation. And this third book is actually from only chapter or yeah, chapter 73 to, I think, 89. And what this is is Psalms by Asaph and others. People who David had commissioned to be there in charge. And so what I wanted to do as we started this psalm, I wanted to get a little bit of a background on who Asaph is. And so turn with me to First Chronicles before we actually get into the psalm. First Chronicles chapter 15. Now when David came into the throne and he was now the king, he started setting things up. He he got some men together in chapter 11, and these were bad dudes. These were guys who were there to guard the nation. They were there, they're mighty men. They were going to protect the nation of Israel. There was Benaniah who, who killed a lion in the pit on a snowy day. You know, there's these guys who, who thwarted the Philistines with like a toothpick. You know, I mean, they were just bad dudes. They, they, they had a lot going for them, but he also wanted people who would take care of the soul of Israel. Not just on the battlefield and protection, but would take care of the heart of the nation. And so what we see in chapter 15 is some of the people that he is appointing, starting at verse 16. David told the leaders of the Levites to appoint their fellow Levites as musicians to make a joyful sound with musical instruments, lyres, harps, and cymbals. So the Levites appointed Heman, son of Joel, and his relatives, Asaph, son of Berechai, and from their relatives, the Marites, Eliath, son of Cush. And so we, we see there's some more people, but they were appointed to deal with the music, deal isn't the right word, but to protect the worship of God in the nation. Go on to chapter 16, starting at verse 1. They brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before God. After David had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each Israelite man and woman. He appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord, to extol, thank, and praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and next to him in rank was Zechariah, then goes on to the other names, Jaziel and so on. In rank, in other words, they had positions. They didn't just say, what are you doing? Hey, you can't chuck a spear, so you want to be in the worship team? These were people who were qualified. And they had this place, and Asaph was the chief. And it says there that his job, he was appointed there 
before the ark of the Lord, to minister before the ark of the Lord, to extol, to thank and praise the Lord, the God of Israel. So that was his duty. That's what he was supposed to do. And David personally put him in this position because it was a position of importance. And so now we go to Psalm 73. This psalm has been a powerful instrument in my life. This is one of my favorite psalms. I think I've said that three times now, but that's why I'm picking the ones I like. They're my favorites. But what we see in this psalm, again, is so honest that these songs actually honestly portray life as it's taking place. And it starts off in verse 1, Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Isn't that just a wonderful statement? What a declaration. What a powerful truth. And just the statement of reality. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. You can wrap your mind around that and you can embrace that and it just makes so much sense. But then there's verse 2 and 3. But as for me... My feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is one of those, what what happened moments. God is good to Israel, to those who appear, but me, I started envying the arrogant. And I don't know about you, but I know in me that this is something that I have seen in my own life. We don't talk about it, but it shows up where I I know God is good. I, I believe this, but sometimes the truth of that isn't actually what's taking place inside of me. What's taking place inside of me is a little bit different. But you see, these songs connect to the seasons and the flows of our life, don't they? You see, I don't know about you, but I'm not always just... everything's great. Me and God, you know, just like you're dead. You know, that's the kind of, no life there. No, life is up and life is down. And life is down some more. And sometimes life's down some more. Oh, but then it's up. And then, I don't know. Am I alone here? Or you guys, does that happen to you? Feeling very vulnerable right here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to just, Lying to you. I'm good all the time. Yeah, how about you? Amen. Yeah, praise God. Um, That's just how we are. And so Asaph here is declaring the truth and the reality. And you see, what he's going to give us here is how we can hold on to God through the seasons of our life. Because that's what we need. We need to be able to hold on to something when we are struggling. And so he goes on, and it gets worse. As he talks about the wicked, verse 4, he says, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten 
oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Did you know that? That's what the wicked are like. There it is in the Bible. Oh my gosh. This is just dark. As Asaph goes and he sees these people who have no concern for God and they're doing well. They're prospering. Everything they touch is golden. They don't seem to have any cares. In fact, they lay claim to heaven. They actually place themselves above God. They don't have any recognition of God. They don't have any concern about the things of God. In fact, they, they lay claim to heaven. They place themselves above heaven. And they take possession of the earth. And he comes to this conclusion. This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. That's his perception. Now, I'm not sure who he was looking at, but this is how he saw those. And I don't know if you ever feel that way. Does anyone ever get envious? Okay, what's wrong with you guys? No. <laughs> we do. And it's amazing because the scripture says that those who are envious won't inherit the kingdom of God. What's that talking about? Well, he's talking about a character. You see, we, we do envy. I, I like watching this TV show. It's called Top Gear, the UK version. Anyone into that? That's the greatest show. But they have these cars on the show. And, and these cars, you know, it's in Britain, so it's in pounds. So this car, this Lamborghini, is 280,000 pounds, which is like half a million dollars. And it goes from zero to 60 in 2.3 seconds. And I just think, oh, I get a shiver thinking about that. Zero to 60 in less than three seconds. Oh, that would be glorious. You know, I mean, it's just, it would be a religious experience. And you see these guys driving these cars and, and they just smile as they step on the acceleration. They just start laughing. <laughs> it's just, they can't control it. And, and I envy that. I want to be on that TV show. I, I would like to drive those cars. I want that job. I'm training dogs, but I want to drive Lamborghinis and Ferraris and Aston Martins. And so I've just let you into my soul. I've shared these things with you, but we do envy. Maybe it's a job. It's a position. Maybe it's how a person looks. Maybe it's a person's family. Maybe it, whatever it is, there's these things where we start envying. And Asaph was envying people who he knew didn't know God. He was envying the wicked. And verse 13, he kind of makes this declaration, surely in vain, I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long, I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. In other words, you know, this is how I'm feeling, but I can't say that because once I say that or once I acknowledge these things, bam, I get judged. They get away with it. Me, I talk, I get judged. I stray a little bit and I get, bam, hit. 
Anyone ever feel like that? Can't do anything? I remember one of my kids said, man, it seems like any time I drink or do anything, I get busted. I go, that's right. <laughs> I just remember that. I can't do anything without it happening and just causing some kind of burden in my life. They get away with it. Me, I don't get away with anything. I've washed my hands in vain. Verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. And verse 17, there's the shift. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. You know, the word sanctuary is interesting because they didn't have a temple. And he's not talking about the tabernacle, the tent where the ark dwelt. What he's talking about is the presence of God. See, until I came into this presence of God, I was troubled. But when I encountered God, the reality of him, then I saw. See, life with God doesn't make any sense unless your life is changed by God. You see, the people who don't believe in God, they don't have any conflict. They just go on. They live their lives. They don't have this guilt of doing things right or wrong. They can lay hold of heaven and they have no problem. They don't have a conscience that deals with those things. And, and what happens many times to us is we have a knowledge of God. We know this is true. We know this is right, but we don't have lives that are changed by God. And so we struggle. The reality of God and the communion of God is not taking place in our lives. What we have is information about God. And so you, you come to a church because you know it's the right thing to do. And you, you hear someone talk and they talk from the scriptures and you know it's true. But you still struggle because the truth that is taking place in the book isn't taking place in you. And so now you see them and you say, man, they're getting away with it, but I know this is true. I can't get away with it. Man, I wish I was them. Man, but I know this, and so I know this is the right thing, but I don't feel like doing the right thing, and I'm struggling. What's taking place is the reality of God isn't a reality in you. Now, understand this. This doesn't mean, well, are you saved or not saved? This isn't a matter of that, you see, Asaph almost slipped. Many times we slip. It's not a matter of, well, do I know God or don't I know God? It's a matter of, do you recognize the communion of God that it's not there in your heart? Do you recognize that what you're wanting and what you're desiring isn't God. And he goes on and makes this turn and it becomes a lot more clear as he goes on in verse 18. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold 
me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth is nothing I and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. There's a perception change that takes place with Asaph. The first verses we see that it's all about they and their. They do this. Their, their health is there. They, they lay hold of this. Their ways just don't seem to fall. And then the shift goes inward. But me, I do this. And, and as for me, and I do this. And now there is the change where he actually says, but you. And you see, our perception is so important. If our, our focus is always on they and what they're doing, or me and what I have, and it's not on you, God, then there's going to be this wanting to fill and this envying and this lack of satisfaction that's there in our hearts because of our perception. And, and there had to be this perception change that took place in him, so much so that he says, who have I in heaven but youth and earth has nothing I desire besides you. What a contrast. There's nothing I want but you as opposed to the wicked have everything and I want what they have. What a contrast. And you see, I love what he's saying here because, you know, I don't talk a lot about heaven and, and, and I, I don't really care a lot about heaven. I care about God because what is heaven if God's not there? And, and so I don't read books about 90 minutes in heaven. I, actually, I did. Um, <laughs> but that's not what I want. What I want is... You, who have I in heaven? What, what good's heaven except for you? And I don't desire anything on earth but you. And so Asaph comes to the place where he says, I am willing to give up everything to have you. I don't want anything on this earth to stand between me and who you are. It is more important than my life. He comes to this awareness of this is really what I need. In fact, he says in verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And that word portion, it's a term that is used for what would sustain you. Remember in that musical Oliver where the boys would get their food? And then Oliver goes, please, sir, may I have some more? You know, he goes up and more, and then the song breaks out. That was their portion. That's what they needed to survive. God, you are my portion. 
You are what I need and what sustains me. You're more important than everything else. But you see, Asaph was able to get back to where he now had that relationship again with God. He was able to get out of that place where God was this rules and regulations. I have to obey God and I, oh, but they're doing, I really wish I had what they have and I, I don't get anything and I'm just miserable. I wish, I wish God would do something for me. I can't tell you how many Christians I talk to or counsel, not, none of you, of course, but that are unhappy with their Christian life because they don't like what they have. They don't like their job. Their dreams aren't being fulfilled. Is this all there is? And I hear these things and then I think, what is your desire? What do you really want? What is the portion you're looking for? Asaph was there. I want that. I want that. Why are they doing this? I'm doing that. Which I'm glad that this is there because I can relate to that. I think we all can. But finally, he says, but wait. When I came back to that place where you and I have a relationship, where God, you actually change the way I think and what I care about. And I recognize I, I don't have anything in heaven but you. And I don't desire anything on earth more than you. And when the reality of that grabbed his heart again, he was in the place and recognized, you're my portion. But the reason he was able to get there is because of where he was. Turn with me back to First Chronicles 16. Starting at verse 8. This is what David told them to sing. David first appointed Asaph in verse 7 and his associates and gave praise to the Lord in this manner. Here's, here's a little bit of a song. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. What a a beautiful song. What a beautiful declaration. This is what David gave to them. I'm putting you in charge and here's a song. I want you guys to take this to the people. This is my heart that I want to be their heart, this desire for God. And you see, Asaph was someone who saw David was a man after God's own heart. He also saw that David was a man who struggled. And here's this declaration. And we go down to verse 37. David left Asaph and his associates before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister there regularly according to each day's requirement. You see, Asaph's job was every day to go and bring the people into this place of worship to God. And so every day, Asaph went to this place where he would sing, where he would pour out his heart, where he would declare the goodness of God. He would be thankful to God. He would hold on to this. And he did it every 
day. What is your daily practice? Remember I asked you at the beginning, what are the habits you wake up and, and have for in the morning? Coffee, reading, whatever those things are. His habit was going before God. And because he developed this habit, this habit held him when the world around him was falling apart. My wife was talking to me the other day, and she talks to me so honestly, it's terrible. And, you know, a lot of times I say things, and she goes, you know, when you say that, I don't think it's really good unless you say this as well. And I, what do you mean? I know what I'm saying. And she makes it very clear. And, and you guys know, if you've been here, a lot of times I talk about this. I, I don't like this religion that puts things as your requirement, you know, reading, praying. And she goes, when you say things like that, people think you, you don't like reading or you don't think prayer is important. And well, I didn't say that. Well, that's the conclusion that they might come to because you're so against that legalistic, well, this is how you get close to God, period. And I had to admit she had truth in her words. But the truth is, I love the scriptures. The truth is, I, I love praying. The truth is, I need the scriptures. I need them in my life. I, I, you don't know God because you know the Bible, but the Bible helps you to know God. And, and you see, that's the struggle that Asaph was having. He, he knew about God. He had the information, but he didn't have the relationship, and that tormented him. And until he got into that close communion with God, then everything became clear. And some of us are, are just pushed into this place of informational awareness. Here, here's what you have to do. You have to be aware. You have to be aware. You have to be aware. And then we find ourselves still envying and still struggling because we don't have the change of God in our lives. But the truth is also that that understanding, that information is what gives you the clarity of what God is like. And by going to the scriptures and reading by going onto our knees and praying. It is something that when the time does get tough, you will find that that is investment into your account. Because if you don't go to God when things are good, the chances are you will not go to Him when things fall apart. But if that is your practice and your desire, then when things do fall out from underneath you, you'll have a foundation that is still there. And you see, Asaph's foundation was daily going before the Lord, going before the Lord. And once you encounter that relationship with God, everything else pales in comparison. And then when I start envying, and then when I start trying to satisfy my life with whatever else, it comes up short, and I start struggling, thinking, what's going on? Oh, I almost slipped. I almost forgot that there is no one in heaven but you. And I desire you more than 
anything on this earth that you're my portion. You're my refuge. I almost forgot that, but I remember that. I know that's true. I've read and understood that. But not only that, I have experienced that. I have tasted and I have seen that the Lord is good. I didn't just read about it. I actually got to taste of it. Don't you hate those cooking shows? Because I'll never do that. I see them and they're making some amazing bacon something. And you look at that and like, oh, that's amazing. And there it is on the screen. And it takes them 10 minutes because they cut. And if here, you know, after 30 minutes, here it is in the oven. They pull it out and there it is. And then they eat it and they're like, oh, that's just wonderful. And you're like, oh, I'm going to go get some cereal. And some of us live our lives like that. We, we read the scripture and we say, oh, look at how God did that. Oh, look at what amazing, oh, that's wonderful. But we never taste it. We never taste it. And it's not a reality in our lives. And so Asaph had put this in his mind. It wasn't an accident that he was able to go there. And... and He's warning us that we need to fight for the right perception. We, we need to fight for the ability to see things clearly again. And it's a battle that comes onto us. There's a, there's a verse here. You read it and you almost think it's wrong in, verse, in chapter 73 again. Verse 23. You read this and it says, Yet I am always with you. Wait, isn't it supposed to be you're always with me? You know, when I don't know you're there, you're always with me. When I don't believe, you still believe in me. When I'm unfaithful, you're still faithful. You're always there for me. But it says, yet I am always with you. You see, there is an intention that Asaph makes where it is his responsibility and not just God's to be with him. Yet I am always with you. It's a decision that Asaph makes. It's a perception that he needs to take. And it's one that we need to take as well. We have to determine I am going to be with you because it doesn't matter what I teach you up here. And it doesn't matter how much information you get if you do not have a desire to be in relationship with the creator of the universe, you will not live the life you were created to live. You have to desire that. You have to want to be with him. And Filling in the seats and doing your time isn't the same thing as wanting to be with your maker. Wanting involves the desire. Wanting is the recognition of that relationship that you want more than anything else on earth. And what Asaph is leading us to is that 
up and down road where we slip, but we regain our balance. Oh, I almost fell. Why? I almost just thought about them, and I almost just thought about me, and then I thought about you. And I want to be with you. What a beautiful song. What a illuminating song that helps us get to the core of what we need. The recognition of God that He is our portion and that we have to have the desire and intention where we can say, I'm always with you. Let's pray. Lord, I know many times we put up a front. We want everyone to think we're doing well. But we all have these struggles, whether it's envying, whether it's dissatisfaction, whether it's a lack of faith. Lord, sometimes what it is, is we don't really believe you have our best interests in mind. We believe that there is a life better outside of you than with you. And we slip. And we pursue that and we think that that life is free from care and worry. We see that life as being, that's what I need. And we become dissatisfied because we know the truth and we know that shouldn't be, but why do I feel that way? And Lord, we need to have that aha moment where we enter into your sanctuary, your presence, where we encounter you, where you encounter us, where we recognize that what we really have is you in heaven. That heaven means nothing if you're not there. And Lord, you are of more value than anything on this earth, than any relationship, than any material possession. And Lord, you are our portion. It is you that bring us life. And Lord, may we say, that we are always with you. You are our refuge and we choose to be with you. I pray for those who are here this morning and, and perhaps they've grown up in church and or have been in this conversation with you, about you for years and, and it's become routine. And they know the truth, but they're not in a, a life-changing relationship. They know about God, but God is not of value to them. Lord, may they see and perceive clearly that there needs to be another step. That they don't need to know about you, but they need you to change their lives, to be a 
force of reality that brings a newness of life. Lord, may we not stop short of that. And if we've slipped from that and we've fallen, may we turn our eyes back to you. May we recognize you and the need for you again. And may we lay for ourselves a habit of coming before you. And Lord, if that habit starts to get old and and we start to take it for granted, we trust that you will revive us again. But may we lay in our lives those things that we can go to for the future. May your words be of value. May the scriptures be treasure to us and may communion with you be breath to our souls. Lord, may we have a life that is alive in you. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.